Welcome to Madame. Today's special guest is Dr. Jamar Tisby on his book, How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition. He shares about racism, his framework called ARC to fight racism, concept of race, and how to work for racial justice, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Homebrew Christianity is holding Theology Beer Camp October 13 to 15 at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Homebrewed is bringing together a bunch of podcasters, scholars, and people who like to nerd out when they party. They want to create a pop-up community of those zesty people who enjoy a quality God pod in their ears. Please join me and many others. Use discount code MADAM to get $50 off registration. For more information, go to www.homebrewchristianity.onepages.co slash tbc22 slash. Madan is sponsored by Methodist Theological School in Ohio. MTSO provides theological education and leadership in pursuit of a just, sustainable, and generative world. MTSO's five graduate degrees include the Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Social Justice, and Doctor of Ministry. Learn more at www.mtso.edu. Please join global justice leader, Lisa Sharon Harper, as she hosts the Alley Tour 2022. It is a four nights of conversation, woman to woman on democracy, faith, and the fate of America. It will be held October 3rd, 10th, 17th, 24, leading up to the November 8th midterm elections. For more information and tickets, go to www.thealleytour.com. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today's very special guest is Dr. Jamar Tisby, who is the co-founder and CEO of The Witness Incorporated and a New York Times bestselling author of The Color of Compromise. He is an author, national speaker, public historian of race and religion, who was featured in the Washington Post, CNN, and The Atlantic. He has a PhD in history uh, from the University of Mississippi. Today, it's such an honor to have you with me, Dr. Tisby, and to share your book, um, How to Fight Racism, a Young Reader's Edition. So thank you so much for coming on. I am thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. You're one of the endorsers, Dr. Kate Bowler, who is a professor at Duke and a New York Times bestselling author of Everything Happens for a Reason, writes, Our children need to learn the truth about the history of race in America. This powerful book will inspire young minds to pursue compassion, knowledge, and the necessary work of racial justice in their lives of faith. 
So thank you so much for coming. And there's so much to discuss uh, from your book. But before we get into the book, I just wanted to ask you about um, The Witness Incorporated. Can you just share us a little bit about that and how you co-founded it? They're going to be writing books about The Witness Inc. One day, I am I am convinced we are we are trying to live in the light of the legacy of history and make history ourselves. So, what the witness is is a Black Christian collective. Uh, we address issues of race, faith, culture, all from a distinctly Black and Christian perspective. We don't believe that those two are mutually exclusive. That we should somehow have to leave our race, our ethnicity, our culture at the door in order to be Christian, which, by the way, is often what is the sort of unstated practice or expectation when you enter into predominantly white Christian, especially evangelical spaces. So we are there as um, we often say, we're not the voice, we're, we're the microphone. So there's no one univocal black Christian voice there are many voices, and we try to pass the mic to them. So uh, our ministry includes a website, the thewitnessinc.com, and then we have two branches. One is the Black Christian Collective, which is uh, education, inspiration, writing, blogging, all of that. The other is our uh, newer branch, and that is the Witness Foundation, the cornerstone of the Witness Foundation is an incredible fellowship where uh, five Black Christian leaders get $50,000 a piece each for two years. So a total of $100,000 investment in Black Christian leadership. And we invest in the person. So no matter where they go or what they end up doing later, they get mentorship, they get the money, they get training and all of that. So you can access oh all of our work through the witnessinc.com. Wow. I, so so I said it wrong, then it's the witness inc. I said incorporated, so I apologize for that. No, that's right. That's but right. That yeah. is okay. It's right. Okay. That is amazing. I checked out the website and it is an amazing website. And there is a donation button. So for those listeners who want to donate for this cause, please go there and donate as little as five dollars. So I'm so excited. I can't believe so fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, listen, <laughs> I told you they're going to be writing history books about us because um, I'm a historian. And so right now I'm looking back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years and I'm saying, what was the Christian presence in times of upheaval, particularly around racial justice? What was the Christian witness? And what we want is to be a witness, hence the name, um, for racial justice, for justice of all kinds in our day. What the fellowship does is says, Listen, we're in the next generation of the civil rights movement, and wow. we have another generation of Black Christian leaders. So just like, you know, the the you've had on um, Al Sharpton, yeah. uh, Jesse Jackson, others of that nature, they weren't the last ones, not wow. by any means. Uh, no. There are more coming along. And so we mm -hmm. want to fund and resource. And the problem is, A, as people of color, we're often locked out of the access to to those financial resources in particular yes. uh -huh. and then b as people of faith you know there there aren't a whole ton of very robust fellowships that are looking particularly uh -huh. at ways of approaching justice from a faith perspective so we wanted to combine those two and we wanted to have a transformative 
impact. So that $50,000 a year number is us saying, well, what would make a transformative difference in the lives of these nonprofit leaders? You know, so, so, you know, ostensibly you could quit your job or you could hire someone else without that, those kinds of, but it's unrestricted. You know, we trust the leaders and we just want to invest in them, um, believing that there is right now a generation of black Christian leaders doing great work and they've done incredible work already. Imagine what they could do if they had the resources they need. Yeah, fifty thousand dollars to do it. That is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for those who are interested, please go check out the Witness Inc. online. And there's a lot of information. So thank you. And just the way you talk in this book, it just—I just think that you're some ordained minister, but you're not ordained minister, right? <laughs> I'm ordained <laughs> through my local church. Um, oh, you but, are? Um, oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you are. I'm primarily okay, the... a, a historian and an author, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So you wrote um, the adult version, and then today we're going to discuss yes. this, uh, the youth edition, the young readers edition. And it's so interesting to me because um, I have three kids, you know, they're older now, so they're beyond this age bracket that you geared it towards but how did you end up doing this for the young readers edition that's amazing that you were able to do this so how did you get this to start uh, or did they approach you <laughs> i I'm, I'm glad you asked and i'll let you in on a secret i think this okay. version for for young readers uh-huh. is probably even more accessible for adults than the adult version <laughs> because <laughs> Because, <laughs> you, you know, for, for young uh, yeah, people, you really exactly. have to break it down. Yeah. So I think this could easily be read. It, it's geared toward ages eight and up. It can easily mm-hmm. be read by that age group, junior high, definitely high school, but also beyond. Um, I, some of the special. <laughs> <laughs> so you can read it along with your young person and not feel like, you know, you're just immersed in this, you know, bubblegum world, whatever it might be. Uh-huh. Um, so, so, so they approached me about the book um oh, to be honest okay. writing uh-huh. a book for young people for me is intimidating <laughs> because because you have to be so clear yeah precise mm-hmm. you have to give the proper con- you could especially when you're talking about something like racism like yeah. uh-huh. actually one of the hardest parts uh-huh. is just explaining racism because mm-hmm. when you try to break it down it's so illogical <laughs> it just doesn't make sense like uh-huh. like trying to explain this to some okay so there's this system that people invented that because people have different color skins they're like they're they, they, they they're worth more they have more opportunities and it's like what how does someone's appearance lead to yeah. all of this stuff and so breaking all that down talking about race-based travel slavery talking about Jim Crow segregation they should talk about white supremacy. It's very challenging, not just because you have to make it accessible for young people, but when you really break it down, it doesn't make sense. There's an internal logic, yeah. but mm-hmm. there's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it, 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 it's very nonsensical. Yeah. And, you know, I write and for adults, you can just put all these quotes in and yes. sell up yep. the pages. But for this, for young kids, you know, you got right to the point. I thought it was so accessible. And as you mentioned, I think it's a great book actually for adults to read in the churches and beyond. It's almost like a a textbook version and it's like so well written. It's so accessible. And then you write 
questions at the end and you have a glossary mm -hmm. at the end of the book. It is such an accessible book. So I actually really enjoyed it. And I have to tell my kids now that I'm done with it, I have to tell my kids to read it because, <laughs> you know, you, you did such a great job because, yeah, you said racism doesn't make any sense, but you're trying to make sense of it. And, you know, young kids of color are all going through this. That's right. So, that's right. yeah. So when I was reading it, I was wondering, because you had to make it for children, for younger adults, um, is there challenges that are different for younger teens? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you mm -hmm. felt it while you were trying to revise it for the younger version than adults. And if so, can you tell us what those are? There's a bunch of different challenges. Mm -hmm. One mm -hmm. is the constantly changing landscape. Um, change oh, okay. is happening so fast now. I mean, think of think of the racial landscape, um, even just like 2015, in 2015, prior to the election of Donald Trump, prior mm -hmm. to all of these things happening. Uh, think about in the past 10 years or so, like before Trayvon Martin and after Trayvon Martin. And, it, it, you know, it, it seems to constantly be speeding up. We can even look at January 6th and the insurrection and, and, and see that there are racial elements in that as well. So the, the, by the time you put the words on a page, something new or different has happened and has changed. So that was a challenge, is trying to give sort of timeless principles in an age where the landscape is shifting rapidly is one challenge. An, another challenge is, you know, we talk about the 2040, 2050 window when white people will no longer be the majority, yeah. they'll be mm -hmm. the, the largest in a plurality of yeah. people groups. Well, that window is already happening with young people. Mm -hmm. um, in our public schools, uh, mm -hmm. recently, I think it was 2019, don't quote me on that, but in our public schools, um, uh -huh. they're majority minority, that, 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 that class coming in yeah. is already uh, majority black and brown and, and, and other folks. So with young people, the challenge is well, we're we're already diverse. We we see lots yeah. of different people. Why are you still talking about racism? That's a thing of the past, or it doesn't affect us, or we're all against racism. What does this have to do with us? So the challenge is to help young people understand, no, this is still relevant to you. Number one, it is relevant because where you go to school, the quality of education that you get, the kind of job opportunities that you get, the kind of networks and, and resources that you have access to, whether you're conscious of it or not, that's still all very highly affected by race. And I can also speak from personal experience. I grew up in the Midwest in uh, the North suburbs of Chicago, mm -hmm. and we were incredibly racially and ethnically diverse. And what that did was, we wouldn't have called it then this at that time, but we what it did was give you a sense of being post-racial. Like all these people are together, we're getting along just fine, what's the big deal? It wasn't until I moved down south to the deep south of, of the Delta that I started to understand and see more clearly just how racism has shaped our society and continues to shape it. So there are young people today who are growing up in an environment that might seem post-racial. And so the challenge is to, to, to constantly make them aware of like, hey, this doesn't have to make you cynical or anything like that, but you need to be aware of how this idea, this construct of race is affecting you. Oh, thank you so much for explaining that because I didn't realize, you know, the 2040 that 
the mi minority majority thing is actually yeah. happening. I, I just, you know, because you think as an adult. So, wow, that is just so interesting to me. And then I found another interesting thing about your book is you had that framework of ARC, A-R-C. Yes. I just thought, I wish I had come up with that. But it's, <laughs> uh, it is awareness, relationships, and commitment. So yeah. you use that as a guide to fight racism. So can you explain to the listeners what that is? Because I just found it so interesting. I wish I had come up with it. Well, I don't know if other folks have had this problem, but I'm a very simple-minded person. If it's not uh -huh. very evident and clear, it's gonna uh, uh -huh. it's gonna be a struggle for me. I'll get it, but it's gonna take a while. So one of the things that was a struggle for me um, among people who write and talk about anti-racism mm -hmm. is two things. One, and I'll include myself in this, we don't tend to address solutions nearly as much as we talk about the problems. Part of that's understandable, it takes a long time to unpack this issue and understand what's happening. But at the same time, you know, if people are reading these books or accessing this teaching, they want to be part of the solution. And so we weren't offering proportionally nearly as much. So, so, so there was just a lack of addressing it in general. But the other problem I found is that even when folks like me did address it, it was hard to follow. I mean, it was it would essentially boil down to like a list of action steps at the end of the chapter or the book. And it would mm. essentially be like a bullet point list of all this random smattering of things, big and small, that you should do. And it's it's hard to take action on anything like that. The, the brain needs mnemonic devices to help us remember. And so that's where the arc of racial justice comes in. So it's... number one, we have to address it. And number two, let's put it in a coherent framework that we can think about. So what I love about this, anything that you can think of as far as fighting racism will fit in the arc of racial justice. So if I wanna watch a documentary on the March to Selma, that fits in the awareness category. I am building information, data, knowledge about race and racism. That's going to a museum, that's reading a book, all of those things, right? But we can't just stay there. <laughs> that's what a lot of people did in 2020 with the George Floyd uprisings and all of that. They read all these books. My book became a New York Times bestseller in that era. But awareness is not enough. There's another part, there's relationships. And so what, what we have to remember is the human element in all this. Why are we fighting racism? Why are we working toward racial justice? It's for the flourishing of our neighbors. And so for white people, that means being proactive and intentional about building relationships with people who are different from you. And that's a really big challenge because throughout US history, white people have built walls. Now you have to build bridges and that's gonna take as much or even more yeah. effort as building the walls. For people of color, that means building relationships with each other. It means solidarity. It means alliances. It means gathering together. The, the most dangerous force against white supremacy is oppressed and marginalized people coming together in common cause and fighting against it. And there's been many, many efforts to prevent that. So we got to come together. But even then, it's not enough. This is where I think the evangelical racial reconciliation movement went wrong. It was all individualized. It was all about handshakes and hugs and coming together and heart to heart conversations over a cup of coffee or tea, right? Like that's relationship building. It's good. It's fine, but it's not enough. 
So that's where commitment comes in. And when I say commitment, I don't just just mean being dedicated or staying the course. I mean committing to structural systemic change. We got to understand racism operates through policies and systems. And this isn't even just on a political governmental level. Institutions, colleges, universities, um, you know, media outlets all have their own policies that can either help racial justice or hurt it. Even our own families have informal customs and policies that will um, help lead to greater understanding or prevent it. And so we need to work on systemic, structural, institutional levels for racial change. And the arc of racial justice is just to help us make sense of it all. Thank you for explaining that. And then when you were going on about, you know, these systems that are in our schools and our workplaces, I would say even in Christianity too, Yes. you know, that's, and you go over some of this in the book. And I just, I love it that you, you just kind of named racism as mm-hmm. sin. And in the church, that's so hard to do. We don't want to do that. So I'm so glad you did it. Why do you find it so difficult for people in the church to just name it as sin? So I think um, you and I wouldn't struggle naming it as sin because in um, our own distinct ways, we've experienced marginalization and oppression due to white supremacy and racism. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really talking about are predominantly white Christian traditions and churches that are struggling to name it if they want to name it at all as sin. And I think one of the reasons why that's such a big deal is because it's so common. If we name racism as sin, which from the pulpit, in a sermon, in a Sunday school class, they'll they'll say that abstractly. What they will hesitate to do is to actually name it in their own historical tradition or in their own church. I'll just give you one quick example. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, about as conservative a place as you can go. And uh, it's ostensibly a non-denominational seminary, but it was it, its founders were mostly Southern Presbyterian. Um, the, the Southern in Southern Presbyterian is when they split off from their Northern counterparts during, uh, during the Civil War in preservation of slavery. So the, the Southern Presbyterians were pro-slavery Christians, which sounds very oxymoronic to me. Um, So they wrote an institutional history on the 40th anniversary of the seminary. It was a historian employed by the seminary. He's a professor there. Uh, Actually, he's a librarian who does history, but he wrote the book. And in it, he called it um, uh, the war between the states rather than the civil war. He mentions Mm -hmm. Southern Presbyterianism, but there's no mention of their pro-slavery doctrine or ideology. Then he mentions these lights of Southern Presbyterianism, like um, uh, James Henley Thornwell, uh, Robert Louis Dabney, and some others who were notorious pro-slavery theologians, wrote about it, wrote volumes about how Black people's rightful place was beneath uh, white people. That's an institutional history that they've refused to be honest about in just that one section of, of, of an anniversary of the history of their institution. Now, that's a seminary. Churches do the same thing. Oh, yeah. If your church was yeah. around from, I would say, 1970 mm-hmm. and before, you, you would be well advised to take a good hard look 
at, let's say, the church minutes of meetings that happened. Let's say um, about the the rulings and the decisions that were voted on in those meetings and see if there's any mention of race, racism. I mean, what was going on at your church during the civil rights movement? Were they involved? Were they speaking against it? Were they in support of it? There's a history there that we have yet to tell in many of our Christian institutions. Um, so all that to come back to your answer, why yeah. is it so hard to name racism as sin? It is so pervasive. We're not honest about it. And I think folks are, number one, they're in agreement with some of these racist ideas, whether they'll say that or not. And number two, if they started actually disciplining people for the sin of racism, <laughs> there would be a whole wow. lot of people caught up in that. So that is actually a great idea. You know, we, we discipline people with the sexual sins, yes. those who commit, you know, assault and things like that. That's a great idea. I never thought of it that way, but it is so pervasive. It is so embedded in our churches, in Christianity itself, in the birth of the church here in the U.S. When you think about how it even rose and what we did to the Native Americans here and then the enslavement of African-Americans and even to Asian-Americans, it is a big sin. So I'm so grateful for you to name it as sin. That also leads me, you know, you had included nine notable Black individuals, and I found it very helpful because I didn't grow up in the States. I grew up in Canada and to learn about, well, I, I learned about Emmett Till, but there were other people here. So how did you narrow it down to the nine people? Because I thought it was so well written. It's like, I think everybody kind of needs to read it, adults too, who never grew up here, who didn't read it in, in their schools and the education system or never came across it. How did you kind of narrow it down to the nine people? Well, I have to give credit to my um, co-author who helped me adapt it. It's uh, Josh Mosey. And so we looked at the adult version and some of the people involved there. And, and mm -hmm. that was part of it. Another part of it was, this is my own little thesis, is that the people we think we're most familiar with are often the most misunderstood. So I deliberately tried to include more well-known names like, like Frederick Douglass in there. Mm -hmm. um, we've heard of, of Frederick Douglass, obviously, right? But, but do we really know much about yeah. him beyond you know, something we heard from some, somewhere from someone, right? So I wanted to dig in, especially for young people who may not have heard of these folks, but they will encounter them. Let's okay. build a good foundation early on. Uh, people like like uh, Rosa Parks, others who, who many of us have heard of, but I wanted specifically to talk about their struggle against racism, um, what motivated them, um, we talk about Kamala Harris's journey in faith. We talk about um, Ruby Bridges. We talk about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, who is one of my historical heroes. She's from the Delta where I live. So I think it is pretty representative of, um, in particular, Black Christians who are struggling against racism. Oh, thank you so much. And then you, you give a really good historical approach to this of racism. Yes. And you, you talk about the war, the Confederacy, etc. What is something that we adults kind of skip over that we should be reminded of? We if skip over. Of yeah, we skip over. Um, we skip over the Reconstruction and Redemption era. 
So immediately following the Civil War from 1865 to 1877, which was the Tilden Hayes Compromise, um, you have what's called Reconstruction. And, and if you think about it, this was in U.S. history the best time to make real the promises of democracy, as Martin Luther King Jr. said. It was the best time to actually enact a multiracial pluralistic democracy. And there was progress, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, so-called. There was the Freedmen's Bureau. This is the, the period in time where Black people, we started our own churches and denominations. We started our own schools. Uh, we started um, uh, training for, for, for nurses and, 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 and medicine. We, we found lost relatives. We got engaged in politics, right? It was this incredible time when Black people disproved what white supremacists were saying, which is that we couldn't handle freedom, mm -hmm. that the only way we could survive in the United States was to be under white people, particularly in the race-based child slavery system. And we totally proved that wrong. But then, I mean, that barely lasted a decade. And then you have uh, this compromise where Southerners in a very close election agreed to give uh, uh, President Hayes the presidency. In exchange, he would withdraw federal troops from the South. And that period that followed was known as redemption. Now, as Christians, when we hear redemption, we think of good news. We think of, you know, God saving sinners, whatever it might be. But in, in the hands of white supremacists in the South, redemption meant taking back the South for the white man. It meant reestablishing in a post-slavery era, white supremacy. And that is the period that became known as Jim Crow. And so when we look at the late 19th century, this critical phase of US history that determines really the course and trajectory of the next 150 years. Wow, thank you for reminding us because I think many adults just skip over that or we just ignore that uh, part of our history. So thank you. Um, near the end of the book, you talk about explore your racial identity. I think mm. this is so important for young people. Uh, you know, for my own story, I was born in Korea and then we immigrated oh. to Canada. And so I grew up in Canada and then I remember uh, because of so much racism, I wanted to deny my racial identity. I thought I should just be like the rest of the white kids and do as much as I can to become white. But, you know, you really tell the readers, you know, you need to explore your racial identity. Did you want to say more about that? I really think that's one of the most important parts of the book. And I flipped to it because I just wanted to get it right. So uh -huh. yeah, I became aware of this model of racial identity <laughs> development, which um, social psychologists use. And, and I became aware of it in college. And it was so helpful for me because it helped me to name some of the stuff that I was going through. So um, it's it's a five stage kind of process. And by the way, I don't I don't think it's really it's never ending, right? Like, yeah. mm -hmm. I think in different seasons of life, you kind of <laughs> cycle back through uh, because you're just in a different context. So it's uh -huh. not like something yeah. you, you, you arrive at. But um, yeah. so so it was developed originally by a guy named William Cross, who called it the, the, the theory of nigrescence <laughs> or the theory of becoming Black. It's been adapted and revised since then. But here are some of the stages. Stage one is pre-encounter. We're all just people. Is that, is that stage. Stage two is encounter. 
realizing my color wasn't supposed to matter, but clearly it does. And usually that encounter phase is, is a negative encounter, right? Being pulled over by the police, uh, being called a racial slur, not seeing yourself represented in you know media, whatever it might be. Stage three is immersion. And that is characterized that even though society tells me differently, I finally believe there's something beautiful about the way I'm created. So this is the, you know, black and proud phase for black people. Black is beautiful, but it's it's saying I love who I am and, and, and how I'm created. But it's also a kind of um, deliberate uh, stepping back from predominantly white. It, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's a stage where you start, you kind of need to go into yourself and into your culture to find the beauty and the joy in it and, 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 and sort of be uh, cocooned off from these predominantly white places that are sending different messages. Stage four, internal internalization. You confidently, confidently declare, I'm comfortable in the, the skin I'm in. So you can go back out into these various areas and be who you are. Uh, so, so, so it's 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 more re-entering kind of a thing with a, a firmer foundation of your identity. And then stage five is is commitment. I can learn from anyone of any race or ethnicity. So this is just a very relaxed, comfortable. I am who I am. You are who you are, and I can learn from you, as well as. I don't have to be aggressive about, you know, asserting my value and the value of my race, ethnicity, or culture. But if it comes to it, I can speak on it. No problem. You know, I, I, I can go there if we need to. So it's just, it's, a, it's, it's almost being at peace with yourself and being able then to go into lots of different areas and be who you need to be and learn from others as well. Yeah, because if you're not at peace with yourself, it's difficult to do anything, um, any form of ministry or anything in your workplace. So thank you for reminding us. And I just really love the concise way that you put that. And for parents who are raising kids who are, you know, and it's not just the racial identity, there are different forms of identity that they're struggling with. I think reading that part of your book will be so helpful for uh, young people. And then, as you said, it's this ongoing thing. Um, so I think even as adults, you know, some of us are struggling right. continuously. Right. So I think yep. it's just so important part of the book. And if you're going to just read one section, just read that one. Um, I think that I highly recommend it. And then you kind of end the book with, you know, how to work for racial justice. Mm. And, you know, this is, you know, this is such an important work and we say it all the time, but none of us, well, many of us don't wanna work on it because we become a little lazy, we get busy and then, you know, we just have other things to do. So, but to really tell it for young people, the young readers, uh, how to work for racial justice. Can you kind of expand on that and share some points with us? Yes. So this was also one of the challenges of writing the book. How do you how do you come up with age appropriate practical steps for 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 young people to take to fight racism? Now, the whole book is arranged according to that arc of racial justice we're talking about. So there's a section on awareness, one on race relationships and another on commitment. In every single chapter, there are practical, actionable steps. But just to give you um, examples uh, from the awareness area, I say uh, talk to slash interview older members in your family mm -hmm. and talk to them about what it was like for them growing up 
ask them, you know, what is their earliest memory of race? Who taught them the most about, did they ever experience racism? What were they doing, you know, in, I don't know, 1968 when King was assassinated or something like that, right? So we can learn a lot from people in our own family. Another part of awareness is self-awareness. So I say, write your own racial autobiography. Think about your own earliest memory of race, your own encounters with race and racism. And even in a very short life, you know, we'll still have those memories. We're starting to encounter race and racism at three, four, five years old. And so can we can we sort of catalog that? With relationships, um, of course, it, it's actually easier for young people to make friends. They're in class, they're in school, they're in activities with people all in the same sort of age and stage of life. And so I say, like, keep it simple. Um, walk up to somebody and say, hey, will you be my friend? And it, which is just an, another way of saying, can we get to know each other? And encouraging young people to do that across racial and ethnic lines, not having, you know, uh, uh, these cliques and these groups that exclude, what does it look like to break those barriers and to move beyond those boundaries? And then on the commitment aspect, there are so many creative ways. I, I encourage young people, run for student government, see how rules are actually made, rules that affect you on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it is going to be incredibly boring, but if you can get your kid to go to a school board meeting, mm -hmm. that would be a really informative way of saying, you know, this is how uh, your school is structured. This group of people gets together, they talk, they vote, and this is how, and you can participate in that as well. Um, and there's certainly other things we can do, like starting book clubs or doing reports or asking teachers for, for different help and advice. So there's actually ends up being a whole, whole lot that young people can do and be very effective at. All I want to do with this book for young readers is communicate to young people, you have agency. Mm. You have the ability to affect your circumstances. You can't do everything, but we can all do something. And if that's the one thing they walk away with, that, that I have the power to make my voice heard and to take action um, on behalf of others and in promotion of racial justice, then it's all worth it. Wow, you are such an inspiration just listening to you. I feel like I'm listening to some sermon and a charge and a benediction to go out and, and use your agency. That's so wonderful. So thank you so much. Um, how would you suggest, because, you know, one of them, you just suggested, you know, start a book club. I think that'd be great if young people can get together and do a book club on this, either in their school or in their churches and their faith community, the neighborhoods. How do you, how would you suggest people to read this book, either in a book club or with their parents or an adult, an aunt or uncle or their mentor? How should people be using this book? Because it's such an important book and, you know, your age group you aimed it for eight and I think 12 or something was it mm -hmm, eight to 12 mm -hmm. but I think it's for all readers that's right, <laughs> to be that's honest. right. I think you should just change it to all readers edition but how would you suggest that we use it such a great question there's many ways to use it so a book-based approach the you can just read this one-on-one -on -one with the young people in your life um there are discussion questions at the end yeah. of each chapter I love I love those yeah and and these were you know again Josh Mosey helped me with these I think mm -hmm. these are actually pretty rich questions if you mm -hmm. if you dig into it yeah. and you can just do it that way 
another way to do it is, and so adults and young people can read along together. Um, there's a person who tagged me on social media. I love it. She on her own, uh, basically, I think it's the neighborhood. She just asked parents to, and said, I'm doing this book club. And she got together a group of kids. They get together, they talk about the book, they have treats and they just hang out. And so I just liked it because it was like, you know, it wasn't just through school or whatever. She's reaching out in her community, but here's the best part. I so believe in the message of this book that I made it multimedia. So um, I have a kid who's not really a reader he's definitely a learner but Mm -hmm. but not really a reader so so what we did was I made a podcast series for young readers and here's the coolest part I got to go into a school and Uh talk to actual fourth and fifth graders so right in this age range about race and racism so you're going to hear the voices of actual kids in this podcast so it would be awesome and they're only about 15 minutes each or so so it's designed like on the way to school or coming back or going to groceries whatever you listen to it with your kid and that's a discussion starter so there's a podcast series and one more thing Uh there is a youtube video series based on the book so if you wanted to you could do, you could watch these 15, 20 minute videos uh-huh. again, geared toward kids. There's graphics, there's stories, there's all this stuff. And you can use that uh-huh. as a jumping off point for a conversation. And uh-huh. it's not completely identical to the uh-huh. book. So you're going to get some content, content yeah. with the podcast and the video uh-huh. that's not in the book. Yeah. Um, but all of this, I mean, it's just, here's the only thing that's stopping us is taking action. Just do it. Just uh-huh. pick one and say like, here's the time you're going to play. Let's go. And I promise <laughs> you, it's going to be incredible conversation, dialogue, and even action coming from it. All you have to do is get started. Wow, that is amazing. So where is the podcast and where is the YouTube address? What is it? So if you just look up Jamar Tisby, my YouTube channel, because the, okay. the URL is all complicated. Um, uh-huh. And then uh, the Footnotes podcast. Footnotes. Oh, footnotes. Uh, That's Jamar your own Tisby. podcast then. That's right. That's oh, right. And okay. just to make it convenient, there is a, uh-huh. a, a, a blog post on my newsletter, jamartisby.substack.com. It's got links to the book, the podcast, and the video. You are so amazing. You know, when I was younger, um, I loved history. Mm, and, and then one of my teachers said, what are you going to do when you get older? I said, maybe I'll study history. And they said, what are you going to do with a history degree? And look at you with a history degree, a PhD. You are an author, podcaster. You started The Witness, Inc. You've t- just multi-talented. I know you're on TikTok, too. <laughs> I started TikTok and nobody's following me. So I quit TikTok. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I'm just you're trying on to keep TikTok. Up with you are you are just everywhere. And I would love to continue talking about this book, but I know you gotta go. But before you leave, I want to say, how does it feel to be called the New York Times bestselling author? <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I want that title one day. It'll never happen, but how does it feel? <laughs> you know, it's 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 a really good question because I'm one of those people who who no matter what I've accomplished, no matter what I've done, it doesn't seem good enough, it doesn't seem remarkable or whatever. But even I couldn't deny like New York Times bestselling author oh, that, that that has some 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 weight to it. Oh, That's an accomplishment, right? So <laughs> 
for me as a as a constant you know person who's who's trying to hustle who's trying to um, make his 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 time on this earth worthwhile that's not everything but it's one thing I can point to that said okay you know I was on I, I was on to something there and and it's recognized so it, it's just reassuring to me to keep going and I think to all of us aside from the accolades of what we do need to affirm each other and grace i've loved this conversation you are such an encourager i think that's a it's a gift that you have through the holy spirit to encourage people listen can we just reach out and say listen i i see this in you and i recognize this as a gift as a talent as a skill and especially with our young people there were people in my life who said jamar you're an excellent writer jamar you're an excellent speaker and I remember those things and it's come back to me again and again over decades. And you never know how, I'm not saying make anything up or be fluffy, but you never know how honestly and candidly recognizing someone's gifts and skills will affect them positively. And that's just, we just need so much more of that in our lives. We sure do. I just, I'm so moved and touched by you. I felt like I was listening to a whole sermon of benediction and a charge <laughs> and everything else. So I hope all the listeners will go out and buy this, How to Fight Racism, Young uh, young uh, Readers Edition, or I would call it uh, All Readers Edition. All Readers, I yes, I like that. Excellent. I think people should read it together in groups and individuals, intergenerational. I think it's a great book for the church and for the school. So um, people just reach out and get this book. I think it's such an important book. So Dr. Uh, uh, Jamar Tisby, thank you so much. I know you're so busy. Thank you so much for being a guest on My Madang and hope to see you someplace, some, sometime yes. face to face. So thank you so much. Thank you. Holmberg Christianity is holding Theology Beer Camp October 13 to 15 at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Homebrewed is bringing together a bunch of podcasters, scholars, and people who like to nerd out when they party. They want to create a pop-up community of those zesty people who enjoy a quality God pod in their ears. Please join me and many others. Use discount code MADANG to get $50 off registration. For more information, go to www.homebrewedchristianity.com dot one pages dot co slash tbc 22 slash Madang is sponsored by Methodist Theological School in Ohio. MTSO provides theological education and leadership in pursuit of a just, sustainable, and generative world. MTSO's five graduate degrees include the Master of Divinity, Master of Arts in Social Justice, and Doctor of Ministry. Learn more at www.mtso.edu. Please join global justice leader, Lisa Sharon Harper, as she hosts the Alley Tour 2022. It is a four nights of conversation, woman to woman on democracy, faith, and the fate of America. It will be held October 3rd, 10th, 17th, 24th, leading up to the November 8th midterm elections. For more information and tickets, go to www.thealleytour.com.
For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.